You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 28th of February 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine is the crunch coming in the frontline town of Bakhmut. Taiwan plans ahead with a law to suppress disinformation in wartime. And what is the most daunting job ad you've ever answered? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Lizette Raymer and Ivor Gaber will discuss all the day's biggest stories and we'll get a view of the conflict in Europe's east from the defence minister of one of NATO's westernmost European partners. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Ivor Gaber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex and Lizette Raymer, Europe correspondent for News Hub New Zealand. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi, Andrew. Uh, we will have more from you shortly. Ivor, I, I hope you're braced to be outnumbered by Antipodeans on tonight's show. I am fearful of the experience. And so you should be. Uh, But we will be beginning in Nigeria, where opposition parties are already calling for a rerun of the presidential election on the country's most closely watched since its return to democracy in 1999. With the ruling party's candidate in the lead, the People's Democratic Party and the Labour Party have called the vote a sham. But is this anything more than losers preemptively refusing to accept defeat? Well, for more on this, I'm joined by the Times West Africa correspondent, Richard Ashton, who is in Lagos. Um, Richard, this is the first time Nigeria has used this new electronic system to accredit voters. Are these concerns about the legitimacy of the vote themselves legitimate? Well, it is very early stages. We're just starting to get the first preliminary reports back from international observers into the election. And what they're basically saying is, This uh, digital voting system was meant to be a tool for improving accountability and and trust and transparency in the election. And actually, it seems to have done the opposite. It's allowed space for rumours to circulate. Um, And as we know, in this day day and age, videos and content can go go around very quickly. A lot of it's unverified. So I'm seeing videos of electoral commission officials uh, supposedly tipexing out results, changing zeros into sixes, um, and, and, and doing no end of, you know, carrying out no end of shenanigans. Um, but, uh, it remains to be seen how much, how widespread that is. In other metrics, um, analysts and observers have, have suggested that, that when it comes to violence, um, when it comes to ballot snatching, which have always been features of Nigerian elections, this one might not even be as bad as previous ones. So, yeah, perhaps a case of sour grapes, but it, it will be interesting to see how, how it plays out. I mean, is there in Nigeria any personage or any entity with sufficient trust in them to be able to say, look, seriously, you know, things are going to go wrong in an election in a country the size of Nigeria, but basically this is all on the straight and narrow? And if, if that person or entity did say that, would they be believed? Good question. Nigeria is a vastly complex place um, where no single authority has full authority. Even the president, Mohamedou Buhari, uh, has become increasingly absent on, on 
in domestic politics. Um, he certainly doesn't have the authority to do such a thing. One man who is hugely respected in Nigeria is Oloshega Nobasanjo, the former president who uh, is, is now a diplomat um, for the African Union. He came out last night with an open letter to Buhari, um, broadcasted himself to the nation, warning of dangers looming ahead um, if the dispute is not resolved. He was basically saying local elections where there are problems and in, in, in polling stations where there, there are disputes, they should be cancelled. But generally, the, the nation should stay calm and uh, allow the Electoral Commission to do its job. One problem is that Albert Sanjo himself had endorsed Peter Obi, the outsider candidate who's shaken up the election with his promise to root out corruption. So even he hasn't been uh, greeted with the greatest respect after that intervention. So it's going to be a bun fight, I think, the next few days. Um, results are still coming in uh, from uh, states around the country. We're getting official announcements this evening. Uh, Bola Tanubu, the ruling party candidate, um, is currently in the lead and looks set to get over the line. But um, as I say, whether he will be accepted and, and how widely he will be accepted is another question. Uh, just finally, we will, of course, be following the progress of this bun fight, as you put it, over coming days. But if we assume until proved otherwise that the election is uh, reasonably straight up and down, do we have any idea yet who is likeliest to win it? Yeah, as I say, um, ruling party candidate Bola Tanubu, who is a former governor of Lagos, known as the godfather of Lagos and Nigerian politics, for his role as the kingmaker, largely, um, in putting or helping to put Buhari in power when he set up a coalition of parties in 2015. He is ahead. Um, he leads Atiku Abubakar, who's the main opposition candidate, another political veteran who's taking his sixth lunge at the top job. And then in third, we have Obi, um, who always won was an underdog, despite some polls suggesting that he may win. Um, he's recorded uh, two major upsets, however. He's won voting in Lagos and Abuja, um, two of Nigeria's major cities, obviously, showing that he's really cut through with metropolitan voters. But it looks like um, the the presidency will go to one of the veterans, uh, and most probably to Nubu. Richard Ashton in Lagos, thank you very much for joining us. Um, Ivor, you have reasonably close-up and personal experience of Nigerian elections. What what do you make of these reports or suggestions, accusations, imprecations so far? Um, I make of it the same at every election I've been involved in. Um, the basis of a democracy is trust, and that is sadly lacking in Nigeria, um, as in obviously many other places. But Nigeria, as Richard was indicating, is a particularly complex place. Um, it's there's a north-south divide, there's a linguistic divide, there's a religious divide, and that makes trust in very short supply. So the winner, the losers, always cry foul, um, and the winners ignore them. There is always corruption, um, vote rigging, and so forth, but. They sort of get through in the end. I mean, there's B, this is the sixth election since the end of military rule. And it's to somebody's credit that the military have not come back and that Nigeria is a sort of democracy. And it is, after all, the biggest country in Africa, the biggest economy, the biggest population, the most poverty. And uh, it, mess, it, it sort of gets by, but it's not a very satisfactory situation.
Well, we will continue tonight's show with Ukraine, specifically with Bakhmut. A little over a year ago, Bakhmut was home to about 70,000 people in Donetsk Oblast. It is now substantially a ruin. Russia's military has spent six months trying to take it and has largely destroyed it in the process. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has conceded that the situation is becoming more and more difficult. Bakhmut is nearly encircled by Russian and or Wagner Group troops who have fire control over the only road in or out. Um, Lizette, we will come to Bakhmut specifically shortly, but you have just returned yesterday, I believe, uh, from Kiev. You were there covering uh, the anniversary of Russia's invasion. What were your general impressions of the mood in Kiev? You know what's surprisingly buoyed, considering it's a year on and Mm. you've been dealing with so much misery and loss, but I think the fact that they've lasted a year, they're still standing, still fighting and doing a reasonably good job... They're in a strong position, although Bakhmut obviously is a hot, hot point of contention at the moment, but they're in such a position that no one ever could have imagined a year ago. To see Zelensky in the middle of the centre of Kiev in an open square, minimal security, making a big speech... I mean, that image alone is not anything you'd imagine a year ago when he was getting, you know, calls from every corner of the world offering to get him out of there and get to safety and pretty much saying it's not going to last a few days. So uh, people feeling, I think, just committed to a long slog ahead, but feeling confident they'll make it. Um, Ivor, looking at Bakhmut itself, does it strike you that this has become one of those battlefields which is at least as symbolically important as it is strategically important? For for obviously brutal reasons, the town itself is not quite the prize it might have been a year ago. There appears to be very little left of it. But Ukraine, having made the progress that Lizette was talking about, doesn't want to be seen to have lost anything, does it? No, well, I I think it's almost totally strategic value. I was looking at a map today. It doesn't stand at a a major crossroad such as Mariupol or Kherson. Um, Okay, it's part of the front line. There are roads crisscrossing it, but it has become, as you've said, it's entirely symbolic. But it's actually an important symbol because Putin is desperate for a victory. Um, Zelensky is desperate to show that uh, the Ukrainian will cannot be broken. So it's a bit like these First World War battles over a bit of mud, but actually those bits of mud eventually became quite important. So sadly, you're right, symbolism it is strategically important, I'm not so sure. Uh, What do you think? Is there a a sense in Ukraine that this... I mean, there have been comparisons of interviews with uh, Ukrainian troops back from Bakhmut who clearly have a fairly well-honed sense of history who've compared it to Verdun uh, in World War I, just this this hideous attritional meat grinder. Um, Is that the sense that you get from Ukrainians that that's the sort of war they're resigned to now? I think Bakhmut isn't a particularly interesting one because what you hear in the headlines are soldiers that are very committed to that, whatever it takes. But then when you talk to soldiers who are on the ground, especially in those trenches in Bakhmut, they they are sharing trenches with Russian soldiers. That is how close they are. That is how brutal it is. And a lot of those Ukrainian soldiers are losing their mates at Mm. an extreme rate. And they're saying there is so much blood on these roads at the moment and this particular battle is not worth it. We should reposition and take a different approach because Bakhmut is not the one to lose so many men and so much ammunition over when we're running so low on that at the moment. This war is essentially coming down to an arms race. So everyone is just very aware that they should be saving men and firepower 
for when they really, sh- really need it and when they can clinch those big victories. I wonder if the Ukrainians' commitment to losing men and, and, and equipment in a relatively unimportant place, I won't say unimportant, but relatively unimportant, is because they're concerned about losing European support and they want to show the Europeans that if they pour arms and, and equipment into Ukraine, it's not wasted, that they can actually use it to win, so to speak. So I, did, I just wonder if, if, if that was the sense you got, that it was important in terms of international politics. I think they're desperately waiting for more tanks, right? So the whole idea building up to this big spring offensive from Russia was to just try and hold on, get the tanks in and get trained on that new weaponry as quickly as possible before the spring offensive really hits them hard. But now I think we can see, I mean, Putin didn't pull off a big barrage on anniversary day as expected. People have put that down to the fact that he didn't have the capacity, the resource, the weapons to do it. So instead he's chosen to focus all what he's got left on Bakhmut and try and get that moral victory there. So I think now they're getting really slammed in Bakhmut. They're in such close fighting distance to the Russians and I think they don't have that weaponry that they thought they'd have by the time that intensified like that. So they've kind of been a bit caught off guard, I think, by it. Just a, a final thought on this one, Lizette, uh, and again, prevailing on your very recent experience of being there. Do you get any sense at all of what Ukraine's limit for what they're able and willing to lose actually is? Because Ukraine is a big country, obviously, pre-war population of 44 million people, but Russia is a bigger one. And it's already clear from this particular war, and if you see a similar pattern repeating in the history of Russian warfare... They don't care. They will hurl enormous human masses at things. And I think it's it's fairly clear that Vladimir Putin is indifferent to the loss of a generation of young Russians in a way that I don't think President Zelensky is to the loss of a generation of young Ukrainians. Yeah, I think a lot of Zelensky's rhetoric is very much like we want every piece of our land back, including Crimea, no matter what. That's definitely the message you get from Zelensky. But this time, for the first time since I've been in Ukraine, I had young Ukrainians saying to me, I think we need to talk about what's what compromises we can make along the Far East because their opinion is that land is always going to be troubling. That land is always going to be threatening a a war no matter if it's given to Russia or kept in Ukraine because there's always going to be people living along that edge that some feel like they're Russian nationals living in Ukraine, some feel like Ukrainian nationals living in Russia. There is always going to be that that tension and I think some Ukrainians are realising that maybe we just get this war over with as quickly as possible because there's never going to be a perfect solution here. Well, let's move along to a somewhat related topic. The well-worn axiom that truth is the first casualty of any war appears to have been coined by a US senator called Hiram Johnson circa 1918, though he may have cribbed it from a rather more orotund formulation of Samuel Johnson from roughly 160 years earlier. But as the current conflict in Ukraine is demonstrating, there really is nothing quite like war for both fermenting and fomenting Buncombe and Balderdash. With this very much in mind, Taiwan is to pass a new law which will criminalise the spreading of rumours or disinformation in the event of attack by China. Um, Either doesn't every country during war, especially during an existential all-out war, do this to an extent? 
Yeah, I think the important words there are to an extent. I mean, I, I find this story, what's, hap what's potentially happening in Taiwan, rather depressing because what distinguished Taiwan from China, apart from other things was democracy, freedom of speech. Mm. It, it has a very lively media. Um, this um, law is going to become into force. It's not when China invades, but as preparation. And as soon as you put those sort of weapons into the hands of government, even if they're only there uh, as backstop, the temptation is to use them. We've seen similar, similar happening in many other countries. Obviously, Putin um, started preparing the information war in pre even before 2014. In 2012, he started putting the control of the media through. Um, so although I understand why they're doing it, um, I'm not comfortable with it. And it's a trend that you see in many other countries. We're in a period where freedom of the media is in retreat. For the last 20 years, up until about five years ago, when the American Freedom House was monitoring freedom of the media every year, the graph was going up. And now it's going down. And that is a serious problem. Uh, the counterpoint there, Ivor, and this is offered from somebody, i.e. myself, who isn't entirely sure what he thinks about this, is that in a war such as the one that may loom between China and Taiwan, as is the case in the war between Ukraine and Russia, there is an aspect at which the country with a free open media is at something of a natural disadvantage because Russia's disinformation campaigns were obviously a means of preparing the ground uh, for its invasion of Ukraine. And this is disinformation disseminated not merely in Ukraine and in Russia, but, but all over the world. China controls its media. You can't broadcast, really, disinformation and rumour and anti-government stuff in China. That's a one-way ticket to the salt pile, same as it is in Russia. So is Taiwan justified in saying, in these particular circumstances, we do have to, uh, you know, we do have to kind of think like our opponent? Well, I can see why they might think that, but you get into the thicket of do the ends justify the means? Are we... So is democracy and freedom, which is our end, can we defend it by getting rid of democracy and freedom? I mean, I, I, I talk in slightly exaggerated terms, mm. but once you go down that road, it is a, a slippery path. Um, completely not irrelevant to this, but Georgia, which is very close to, which is bordering Ukraine and right, well, it's bordering Russia, is introducing now, because it feels under threat, similar um, restrictions on the media um, and, on and on voluntary organisations. So, yes, I understand why they're doing it. Um, but as I say, it, it's, I think they're possibly making a mistake not that I'm, you know, goodness me, for me to tell the Taiwanese government what to do, but I think it's a regretful, a regretful step. Uh, and or Lizette, should Taiwan's government, any government under threat, or I would argue for one, governments more generally, take a firmer line on this stuff with social media platforms, which are incredibly influential, uh, incredibly pernicious in many respects, and it's the, it's the absurd end of it, but you don't need to spend too long now on Twitter, for example, to see American-based accounts, verified accounts with huge audiences, not merely broadcasting half-truths, rumours, falsehoods about the war in Ukraine, but actually claiming that there is no war in Ukraine. Uh, I, the whole conversation I was just thinking, social media is the problem, in my opinion, especially, you know, we've seen this, as you mentioned, with Russia and Ukraine, that is a, a prime example of social media being so incredibly influential and dangerous. In Ukraine, when they were changing the, the media laws over around 
the war, there was a conversation about limiting social media, and in the end they backtracked on that and they didn't extend the legislation to cover it. But I've heard of multiple situations in Ukraine where social media has been the greatest spreader of the disinformation. There was a Sky News reporter recently, one of those who was shot at in Ukraine, who said that his young, I think it was his nephew, hit him up at a family barbecue recently and said, but were you actually shot at? Because... I'm pretty sure that was just made up, wasn't it? And had a long conversation with the Sky journalist about whether or not he, and it was his family member, whether or not he had in fact been in that situation. So that's just the power of it because it was things that he had been ingesting and watching online on TikTok probably that put him in a position where he was going to doubt the validity of his uncle's story of that level. And I'm like, that's really where the influence is, I think, more so than what the mainstream media media is talking about and covering. Well, let's now look at UK politics where there is, I mean, can we cautiously call this good news? It's been so long since we've said anything like that about British politics, because the day after it was announced, all interested parties are still attempting to absorb, nay, digest the UK-EU agreement over Northern Ireland, billed as the Windsor Framework. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has been in Northern Ireland today pitching it to local politicians and has been giving it plenty about what a marvellous thing it will be for Northern Ireland to have access to the EU single market. Maybe we should think about rolling it out to the rest of the country. Please imagine huge eye roll right there. First of all, we can hear from our Europe editor-at-large, Ed Stocker, on some of the reaction from Europe. Important for us to close this chapter. The words of European Parliament President Roberto Mezzola reacting to the Windsor framework. After years of disagreement, protracted talks and bad blood, this was a clear indication that many in Europe felt it was time to move on. She wasn't the only one using book analogies. Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission President and Dealmaker-in-Chief, also talked about opening a new chapter at her press conference with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. Emmanuel Macron, on the eve of a trip to Africa, didn't give too much away, simply stating that he welcomed this important decision. The most effusive European leader was perhaps far-right Italian PM Giorgia Meloni, who said she welcomed the agreement, referring to the UK as a friend, ally and partner country. Tomorrow's Le Monde newspaper has an editorial dedicated to the Brexit debacle and what it calls an end to the sourness produced by it. The French paper says that British MPs have often played on the supposed europhobia of the electorate instead of trying to build bridges with European counterparts. With this framework agreement, Rishi Sunak has turned a page on the chaotic Brexit story and broken with Boris Johnson's confrontational past. In case you missed it, there was another book analogy. Ed Stocker with the reaction from Europe. Lizette with the reaction from New Zealand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, New Zealand is just on the edge of its seat with this, really. <laughs> you can imagine me trying to pitch it to producers yesterday. No, there's obviously, there's obviously Northern a bit where, of interest. Sorry. Yeah, Northern Ireland or Ireland, and what's the difference? No, they're not quite that ignorant. But um, yes, 
we've covered it, mm. and uh, there is some interest. Fair to say it's not the talk of the bars and saloons it of Auckland and Wellington. It wasn't the lead story. No, I'm no. shocked I, and appalled. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ivor, is this, if not a good thing, then at least as good as we were going to get? Well, there are two different questions there. It is a good thing, but we could have had better, <laughs> but that's history now. Mm. Um, I think this is a very good, relatively good thing for... Firstly, because it means that trade with Northern Ireland um, should pick up, which is no bad thing. Although it has to be said that since the introduction of the so-called protocol, the Northern Ireland economy has grown at a faster rate than the UK economy. Um, and there's no reason to be surprised because you, the Northern Ireland is in both the UK single market, if you like, and in the EU single market, like what's not to like? But secondly, hopefully it restores democratic government to Northern Ireland. Um, the DUP, the Protestant party, has been refusing to take part in government in Northern Ireland because of their dissatisfaction with the protocol. Hopefully, although I'm not totally convinced, they will return to government because I think Northern Ireland as a democratic country deserves a democratic government, which they ain't had. They've had direct rule from Westminster for th over two years now, and that's not a good thing. Um, Lisette, there has been, as, as Ed was intimating, fairly welcoming noises from across Europe. Uh, President Emmanuel Macron among those uh, giving favourable statements today. Do you get the sense that this might be something of a turning point after the recent years of hostility in the UK's relationship with Europe? I mean, obviously, Rishi Sunak uh, did campaign for Brexit. He is not a, a bandwagon climber like his immediate predecessor, Liz Truss, who campaigned for Remain and then, funnily enough, went all Brexit the minute that was lost. But nevertheless, do you get the sense that Europe is starting to think, well, whether we agree on this particular thing with the people in charge in the United Kingdom now, they're not you know, quite as weird as what has gone before them. Yeah, I wonder if there is just a little bit of that, well, it's better than what we've been dealing with. So mm. anything, you know, is an improvement. <laughs> and then they're just really probably warmed and and heartened by this agreement. And it's proof that the two can reach some sort of concessions or some compromises and improve something that has been troubling for both sides. So I, I definitely think in the wake of Liz Truss and Boris Johnson, both who didn't seem all that fond about fostering those relationships with the EU. Rishi Sunak is at least putting his hand up and saying, I'm prepared to be a better option. Well, developments have, of course, also been closely watched in the United States. And here is Monocle's Washington correspondent, Chris Chermack. Joe Biden has made no bones about his priorities when it comes to Brexit over the years. The US president has cared less about UK-EU relations than what happens in Northern Ireland. Biden issued a long and impassioned statement on the Windsor framework yesterday, calling it an essential step on the path to peace. The president is no doubt itching to travel to Northern Ireland in April for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And Biden's national security spokesman John Kirby yesterday said the framework could open up all kinds of avenues for trade with the UK that had been at risk until now. In other words, the next prize dangled before UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak could be a US-UK free trade agreement. But for that to happen, Sunak probably needs to take one more step. The odds are Joe Biden will only visit Northern Ireland in April if there is something to celebrate. Reviving the Stormont Assembly would certainly count.
Uh, that was Chris Chermack. Um, Ivor, as Chris was intimating uh, there, Joe Biden has been taking a very close interest in Northern Ireland. Most US presidents do. Uh, Joe Biden also claiming familial connection, despite the fact that when you actually look at the family trees, uh, he is precisely half the Irishman I am. And you don't catch me going on about it. It would sound weird. Um, but is a Joe Biden visit on the 25th anniversary of Good Friday a, a big deal? Would it be a big deal and, and a big prize for Rishi Sunak? Well, I, I think it would. It would be symbolic. I, I have to say, um, I, I'm not sure. I think an Ameri- a free trade deal with America is a long way off. Mm. But I do think it would be symbolically important when um, Clinton visited Northern Ireland. That seemed to have a gave a huge boost to the peace process. Um, these these symbols are important, both in America but also in Ireland itself. And um, I don't think the Protestant community led by the DUP has a great deal of love for Joe Biden because his claims, whenever an American politician claims Irish ancestry, it's always on the Irish Republican (laughs) Catholic side. They never claim to be a descendant of Ian Paisley or whatever. So I think it would be a a great boost to um, the Sinn Féin who govern who are, govern is the wrong word, who have the large, who, who the first minister is from Sinn Féin and who are probably going to take power in Dublin soon. But it wouldn't be a great boost for the Protestants. But for Richie Sunak, definitely. He's shown a bit of backbone, which many people thought he didn't have. It looks like he's standing up to the DUP and to the his own Brexiteers. So I think at the moment he's in a better position than actually the last three Conservative Prime Minister's, when it comes to Northern Ireland, he's done the deal, it looks like. Just finally on this, uh, Lizette, and at the risk of tempting fate, uh, to follow on from what Ivor was saying about, we have so far not had enormously vituperative obstructionist reactions from either the DUP or the ERG, which is the European Research Group, which is the hardcore uh, Brexiter headbangers among the, the Conservative backbenchers. Does it look like Sunak has, in fact, outmaneuvered all of them? Oh, yes, but don't, you don't want to speak too soon no, on that, you do don't. you? I think what what I was hearing last night and, and today has been a whole lot of we need to carefully read over it and examine this before we... Properly. But, th- but that's unusual right there because exactly. it, it's, it's usually it's been toys out of pram It's encouraging. Instantly. It's mm. encouraging. My only concern would be if after that they all go back together and they're together talking about it and then they rack each other up and decide that it's worth still going back to battle. That I think is... is it's a high risk for them because if there is another election, there has to be another election soon, they could have further setbacks and become even smaller party compared to Sinn Féin. So they've got, I think the majority of their voters want them to agree to I it. I think it's promising. Okay, well, it is one way to ensure maximum exposure for your vacancy. Write the job ad in such a way that the gig sounds like something for which no sane person would ever volunteer and let the internet do the rest. A listing posted to the New York Foundation for the Arts has been delighting the online realm, seeking, it says here, a full-time assistant to a high-profile art world family. They sound bearable. Duties summed up as make life easier for the couple in every way possible. Specific including arranging travel and dining, managing household staff and pets, general housekeeping, gardening and errand running, plus childminding for a stipend of between sixty-five and $95,000. Either, first of all, are you tempted? I mean, 95 grand even in New York, it's not bad. Was I tempted? 
I, no, no, and I could see actually <laughs> um, a young person wanting to live in New York um, might be tempted because that's more than they'd get as an au pair. Um, uh, the list of chores, though, might just put them off. What I liked here wasn't the, dog the, the walking. The list of chores appeared to include literally everything. And including managing the dog system. Yeah. Does that mean sweeping up the poo? I couldn't work out what managing the dog system meant. But no, I have to say, actually, I would have been turned off by the very beginning. What is it? A family associated with the art world? Uh, a a high-profile art world family. Pass the sick bag, as somebody <laughs> said. Exactly. Uh, Lizette, I'll, I'll ask you the opposite question, which is, if you have... <laughs> Had a spare sixty-five and ninety-five to ninety-five thousand dollars going, and I, I, I don't know what colossal sums you New Zealand TV oh, journalists think bigger than your wildest dreams get, get paid. <laughs> um, how much would you pay someone to pay? to run your life for you if in fact not actually live your life for you when i read this ad i did start to think what are these people actually going to do all day I this know. person is literally living their life for them i know 95k to make my life easier in every way every way maybe you, you if could, i had a spare 95k you could send someone else to do this show <laughs> that wouldn't make my life easier that would make it dull um the ad itself did prompt us uh, to think about the own, our own most demanding uh, job descriptions or bosses uh, we had ever encountered. Uh, Ivor, do you have any particular nightmares of this sort? Well, I, I sort of do. I w- worked in a newsroom where the news editor was tyrannical and shouted and bullied and all the sort of things that uh, news editors think they ought to do. And um, one day we had what's called a chapel meeting. The National Union of Journalists is organised into chapels, goes back a thousand years. Um, And we were going to protest and they said, well, we're going to walk out. And I said, well, hold on, we're going to try and negotiate first. So I was deputed to go and see this monster. And I thought I had a, a really killer argument. I said, X, do you know... You know, nothing personal, because we get on really well, which wasn't true. He bullied me as much as he <laughs> But, you know, you've not got a very happy newsroom. And he said, he was Australian, actually, but I won't do the accent. He said, Ivor, <laughs> I don't want a happy newsroom. And I had no more arguments when I walked out and I said, everybody out. <coughs> uh, your former boss, uh, though a compatriot of mine he may have been, does sound like a monumental jackass. Well, I don't genuinely... There used to be a notion, a trope, that news edit, that news editors had to be brusque and shout at people to get results. I've never believed that then. No, I don't believe have it I. now. Uh, I, I think people just do that because they enjoy doing it and they think that role gives them a licence mm. to behave in that fashion. We like TLC. Mm. Um, Lizette, have you ever had any particularly nightmarish bosses, onerous job conditions, etc.? I once worked for an ice cream shop, which actually was a great job. It was a, <laughs> I was just like, a yeah, summer. What's your problem? <laughs> I know, and so I'm reluctant to complain because it was a joy. It was like the middle of summer, and you'd be scooping ice cream. But the boss was very, very um, strict on how many grams of ice cream we did per scoop, and would like. T- t- take our scoop over, weigh it, very, very just would really ruin my fun of giving people more scoops than they probably that, wanted. That's, a, that's an amazing combination, though, being like a humorless martinet and going An into the cream. ice cream trade. But wait, it gets worse. So then one summer we were working away and the fan was broken and she got me up to check if the fan was on and I'm the tallest, so I get up there. The fan came down, my arm got stuck in it, almost lost an arm. That's not an exaggeration, massive 
laceration. Went to hospital. Obviously, my family's all very concerned. And the boss says, it could have been so much worse. And my mum's thinking, yes, it could have been her face. And the boss replies, it could have been me. <laughs> and then who would have made the ice cream all summer? Um, so so you basically what happened then was you, you gave up the ice cream retail trade for a, a slightly less hazardous and stressful job covering yes. Ukraine. And now when I go back to New Zealand, I walk into the ice cream shop, I ask for my two scoops, and I don't pay. I just hold up my arm. They refer to me as the Scar Girl. They know the history and I get free ice cream. Right. So you didn't feel frozen out? Hey. <laughs> I do. <laughs> on that <laughs> Sorry, bombshell, Ivor Gabe uh, just enjoying his last ever appearance on The Daily. Uh, and Lizette Raymer, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, finally on today's show, it has been clear for the last year that a closer a European country is to Russia, the less indulgent its view of Russia. Few, if any, I haven't measured, European NATO members are further from Russia than Portugal. To get some sense of the view of the conflict from Lisbon, I spoke earlier to Portugal's defence. Minister Helena Carreras. Portugal has promised leopard tanks and come off helicopters to Ukraine, among other kit, but I began by asking the minister to clarify some remarks recently attributed to her that Portugal was unable to supply Ukraine with any more weapons. That was a, a misunderstanding. In fact, they were just asking whether at that exact moment I was uh, announcing new equipment, but in fact, I was just reiterating that we would offer Ukraine the, the most important package of military aid to, so far. Portugal will send to Ukraine three Leopard 2A6 tanks and additional vehicles and, uh, and other equipment. So, uh, in fact, I was just saying that I'm presenting here again one of the most important packages of military aid to Ukraine, one which is really meaningful and relevant for Portugal. These three uh, Leopard tanks are among the, the, our most sophisticated equipment. So this is an effort that shows our commitment to help Ukraine and uh, keep that support until uh, it's needed. And uh, we are joining our friends and, and partners in this. And this is our strong commitment to help Ukraine resist this illegal invasion for as long as it takes. I did want to ask you about your reflections on the, the last year or so since Russia invaded Ukraine. You became Defence Minister in March last year, which is quite a baptism uh, in that job. Do you get the sense that Europe's resolve is actually hardening rather than splitting, as a lot of people feared? Oh, yes. Our resolute is strong. Uh, it has been since the beginning when we all realised how brutal and illegal and unlawful was this invasion, and we became stronger together. This was a surprise for Mr. Putin. Europe grew stronger, NATO grew stronger, and what I've been wa uh, watching and, and testifying throughout this year in all the meetings I attended is that this unity, this collision among uh, allies and, and member states is big, is uh, resilient. I mean, everybody is committed to this union and understands that although there might be uh, differences among us, of course, it's one of the most important elements to help Ukraine and to face this war. I mean, for you personally, though, what kind of difference has it made to the sort of role you thought you might be playing as, as Minister of Defence? Well, one thing is that the international arena and scenario became 
more relevant. So I would have to I have to face challenges both in their home front and uh, at the international level. We have to be very attentive because this is a fundamental conflict that has the potential, of course, to uh, reorganize the, the security landscape. So uh, for, as a defense minister, I have to be very attentive and follow uh, these international events with greater attention. So facing different uh, uh, challenges at the same time, this, the intensity of the job is, is great. I did want to ask about what perspective you now have on the research you had done in your previous life as a sociologist on gender and the military. You are one now of a still very small number of female defence ministers, Portugal's first female defence minister. Do you think that there is a different approach in the way women look at questions of defence? Not necessarily. I do not have an essentialist view on how gender defines our our perspectives on security and defence. I do believe, however, that uh, diversity and inclusion are fundamental features uh, for defence and for more effective defence. And that's what I've been uh, advocating and that's what I believe uh, military uh, commanders and leaders should also advocate because it is fundamental to understand that the effectiveness of forces depends a lot on our ability to count on the talent of all citizens and that not including women is definitely something that will harm our efforts to to better defend ourselves. So this is the message. And I think it's, it's getting through. It's getting through, even though we are still not in a position to, to consider that women have been fully included, that uh, diversity is uh, valued enough, but it is a path that we must walk together. And uh, I think that's what exactly what we're doing. We're speaking to you having just returned from the Munich Security Conference and one of the recurring themes that did come up at that was the difficulty that the Western Alliance is still having in persuading what we might think of as the global south to pick a side uh, where Russia's invasion of Ukraine is concerned. Obviously, Portugal has an enormous natural constituency it could be appealing to, that huge Lusophone world in Africa and, and South America. Is that something that factors into your job or factors into the way that your government is thinking about the war in Ukraine? Well, it does, because we do have this uh, perspective of a 360 degree to security. So uh, we are facing uh, threats on the Eastern Front, which are uh, also emerging in the South. And we should not forget that all these uh, challenges, all these threats must be uh, viewed with this uh, more broader perspective. And uh, we are very much involved in, in Africa, for instance. We have a variety of missions in Africa. And we are really aware of how Russia terrorist networks and in Russia, through uh, Wagner Group, for instance, are gaining ground there. So we we should not only be looking at the Eastern Front, where, of course, uh, it, the main stage of this war is, is, is happening, but also uh, around the world. So we should really try to focus on explaining why it is so important that we're fighting for a rule-based international order, fighting for international law, and how these principles should be a common ground 
that will be beneficial for everybody. And it's a narrative war, a symbolic dimension of this war, which is as important as the material one. That was Helena Carreras, the Defence Minister of Portugal, speaking to me earlier. And that's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Lizette Raymer and Ivor Gaber, also to Ed Stocker and Chris Chermak, and to Richard Ashton in Lagos. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantou. And our sound engineer was Callum McLean, with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 